to uh, finally be here at Vestavia Primitive Baptist Church. Um, we've looked forward greatly to being here with you all in this service. We're very thankful for the uh, kind invitation of your dear pastor, uh, Brother Josh. It's very, very kind of him. Um, I had the privilege 41 years ago, almost 42 now, of uh, marrying the niece of Elder Sam Bryant, who uh, you all are very, very close to here, of course, and he loves you all dearly. And so um, about every year unchecked, we have um, Thanksgiving with him at my wife's mother's house. It's the gathering place of uh, that portion of the Bryant family for Thanksgiving. It's a wonderful time of year, and we love it, look forward to it. I'm going this year with some level of apprehension. Um, Brother Sam, while he was here, uh, invited me to come to Vestavia Church very sweetly, very kindly, maybe four times uh, to come to Vestavia Church. And every time he invited me to come here, every single time I had committed to be somewhere else. And uh, I was informed that whenever we get to Thanksgiving, I can explain to him why Brother Josh invites me one time and I come. <laughs> I look forward to that. <clears throat> you can hear him, can't you? Brother Dave, um, I have something I'd like to speak to you about. <clears throat> The microphone, um, the microphone, the ability to be heard in the sanctuary. Uh, a couple of years ago for Christmas, several of the young folks got together and all pitched in a, a dollar or two on a coffee cup that resides in my kitchen till this day, and it says, don't make me use my preacher voice. So we can do it with the Lord's help. We can do it. <clears throat> Uh, I'm very, very thankful to be here this evening with all of you, especially to be in the company of my dear friends, Brother Tim, Sister Tracy, and Sister Abigail, who I enjoyed their precious hospitality last night in the Zion community and uh, had the sweet privilege of being together with uh, several of the saints this morning at the uh, church over at Bethlehem, including your pastor and several of the dear men from this church. It's been a, it has been a wonderful day. Um, I solicit an interest in your prayers. I've been trying to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for almost 50 years now, and I share frequently one of the, I hope I know a little more, I'm not saying, but a little more uh, today than I did 50 years ago. Maybe, but uh, one of the things I've never learned is how to direct the Spirit of God. And uh, it's not the gospel without the presence of the Spirit of God. You all know that. I want you to know that I know that, and I need your prayers. So please do pray for me while we try to share with you the truths of God's Word. I want to read to you uh, from the Word of God, Mark chapter 14, the Olive Press. Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. They came to a place, and by the way, I use an iPad, and I hope that doesn't offend anyone. I've been a diabetic for about 30 years, and I have uh, retinopathy now. And I move a little when I speak, and it's very difficult for me to track with the the fonts blown up here and it's backlit and I can track as I move a little better so I hope that it's the word of God <clears throat> they came to a place which was named Gethsemane and he saith unto his disciples sit ye here while I pray and he taketh with him Peter and James and John and he began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy and he saith unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Tarry you here and watch. It is so easy 
in reading God's word on a regular basis just to skim over, brush by, and pass over critical, critical passages. These are really staggering, amazing passages. They give us just so much soulful information. It's not just info, it's soulful information about the Son of God, who He is and what He came to do. Listen to what is said about God manifest in the flesh. This is the second person of the Godhead, the crown prince of glory, began to be sore amazed, very heavy, and said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. The Son of God is amazed, he's very heavy, and he's exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Tear ye here and watch. That's the word of God. One of the greatest, uh, one of the greatest, most difficult questions for us to deal with as born-again believers in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a tough question. It's an issue. One of the most difficult issues for us to deal with. Um, and I engage, I engage with uh, individuals at institutions of uh, higher learning in America. And they know that I'm a pastor. Uh, and I go in and out among them. And so I have these conversations not infrequently uh, with folks who are college and university level professors and educators. And I get this uh, at least a couple of times a year from them. Um, Mr. Crawford, uh, you profess a belief in uh, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old and New Testament. And... Uh, you say that your God is, a, I've heard this many, I've had this many times. Your God is a loving God. He's a caring God. He's a benevolent God. He's a God of love. Compassionate God. He's omnipotent. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's calling the shots. He's caring. He's loving. And yet, we look around and we see the darkness of this world, the heartbreak. The tragedy, the terror that exists, the broken lives, the broken homes, the nightmares that little children are raised in, the nightmares that uh, people in Ukraine and in Palestine that they're experiencing today. Your God is a good God. If he's a good God and he's all-powerful and he's all-wise and he's benevolent, then why are bad things happening? Why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he show that he cares if he's the God that you say that he is? Let me say, that's a good question. It's a good question. And uh, it bears an answer. If God cares... Why doesn't he do something about it? Well, let me say this. Everything, everything they said, the challenges they pose are true. Amen? It's a broken world that we live in, isn't it? This world is broken. Paul is so clear. He doesn't, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I trust the word of God. And I recommend it to born-again believers is you can trust it. The word of God is brutally honest with us at times about the way things are. Our Savior never soft-souled the truth. He told us in this world we're going to have tribulation. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8, make no mistake that the whole creation, the entire creation, the entire cosmos groaneth and travaileth together until now. The horrible effects of the disruption of sin in this universe are so pervasive and they're so prevalent. And it does break my heart. I deal with the brokenness of it every single day of my life. 
I find myself intervening, whether it's my professional responsibilities or my pastoral responsibilities. There is not, there's not a day in my life that I'm not called on professionally to go somewhere where there's not crisis going on somewhere that's the result of the brokenness of this world. There's not a week that goes by that as a pastor, I'm not called to some home or some circumstance in our community where the brokenness of this world is not demonstrating itself. My heart is often heavy. But I've got great news for you. Contrary to what the scoffer and the skeptic has to say as they hurl their cynic bands against the good name of our God, our God does care and he has and is doing something about it. He hasn't gone away. He hasn't left us on, on our own to do the very best we can in brokenness. He has done something about it. He is doing something about it. And he's got the best ultimate remedy that we could begin to imagine. He's doing something about it. He's moved on our behalf. And these verses I've read to you tonight are clear proof that he has. And so my response to them is, I said, well, of course I do. I believe in the Old and New Testament. I believe that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead. This is the answer that I give to their question. They want to know, in my system of belief, what I have to say about these bad things, is God doing anything? Why doesn't he do something? I believe that Jesus Christ is God overall, blessed forever, just as much God as the Father is and the Holy Spirit is, of the same divine essence and substance. And that God, 2,000 years ago, that God, 2,000 years ago, spoke to the womb of a virgin and commanded that virgin's womb to clothe him and to make him a body of flesh. And he came and he lived as the poorest of the poor. He did. He walked walked in the same dirt that you plant your garden in, breathed the same air that I breathed, the crown prince of glory. He came here. But when he made his entrance, as the old poet said, today, speaking of the birth of Christ, the poet said, today he makes his entrance here, but not as other monarchs do. He deserved the very best that this world had to offer, and he took the very least. And he grew and he became an itinerant peasant preacher. And when they ask him, when they ask the Son of God for a day's wage to pay Herod's tax, the head tax, when, and it, all it took was a day's wage, a penny. And uh, he didn't even have a penny to give. <laughs> he had to ask for a penny. He lived as the poorest of the poor. What is God doing about it? Well, I tell him he's God manifest in the flesh. That's what I believe. And here's the ultimate thing that I tell them. If he's God manifest in the flesh, here's the answer. If he's God manifest in the flesh, if God came to this earth 2,000 years ago, and he did, mystery of mystery, then what is God doing on a cross? You think he cares? When you doubt it, when you doubt it, just look to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You think he cares? Tonight, and that's, we're going to look at some of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's the season of Thanksgiving. My favorite, my favorite season of the year, I love the season of Thanksgiving. I appreciate what your pastor had to say, and I'm very thankful that you all honor Thanksgiving with a series of services here. It's so wonderful. We begin to see here tonight reasons for real Thanksgiving. He came. He really came. There's an there's a unusual prophecy, messianic prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks through the mouth of the prophet and he says this. He says that I'm afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. 
Do you think about that much? You know, we think about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the intense, incredible, amazing soul suffering of the Son of God at Calvary, unequaled, unparalleled in the universe and in the history of the cosmos forever, the suffering of the Son of God. But it didn't just start at Calvary. At 12 years of age, at 12 years of age in the temple, he kind of rebukes his mother a little. Whenever she rebukes him, and he said, How is it that you sought me? Wished you not that it's time that I be up and about my father's business? The bearing of our sin burden. As a 12-year-old boy, he felt it. As he disputed with the doctors and the lawyers in the temple, he felt the burden of the weight of your sin. But now we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. The storm clouds of Calvary are gathering around. The storm is on the horizon. You've looked out on beautiful summer days, and the sun is still shining, but in the distance, you can see ominous clouds, big, billowing, dark, gray, monstrous-looking clouds gathering on the horizon. They're foreboding in their sight. And so now it is for the Son of God. The storm clouds of Calvary are right in front of him. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's beginning to feel the weight. He's just left one of the most intense instances of fellowship with believers that the church has ever known. That time with uh, him and the disciples in the uh, upper room, it's precious, it's, it's wonderfully passionate fellowship between he and the apostles, but there's no time to uh, wait and relish in it. He goes immediately into the garden for what awaits him. And the word of God uses these words as Jesus, he leaves the inner circle, he leads he leaves Peter, James, and John behind. And he goes a stone's throw, about 50 or 60 feet away from them. And he kneels down. He's pressed down. The weight of our sins are gathering on him. And he, he's being bowed over by the weight of them as a man. As a man. We keep in mind now. We'll never lose sight that he is God and man. He's both of them. He's all of them, all at once. The hypostatic union of the Son of God. He's all man and he's all God. And we're going to see him as a man. God manifest in the flesh. It's a mystery. I've spent my life contemplating it. It's overwhelming. And as a man, we will see him suffering. Listen. He began to be sore amazed. Now, that's not like seeing a wonderful magician. That's not like seeing sleight of hand. How amazing is that? Or a great fireworks uh, display where we're ooing and aahing in amazement. It's not that kind of amazement. It means literally to be in terror, in amazement by terror. That incredible, the man Christ Jesus. It's difficult for us to think about that. He is sore amazed. It's not my language. And to be very, very heavy. He's alarmed. He is alarmed. The Son of God. That's the definition. That's the language. So I want to stop and pause because this is so counterintuitive to everything we think about. Jesus Christ being amazed, being terror, being alarmed. As God, he is not. <laughs> He remains God over all, blessed forever. But as the man Christ Jesus, he's experiencing things that he has not experienced before as a man. And one of the reasons he's doing it now, Paul says, is so that he can be a faithful and merciful high priest in things pertaining to God for you. So what does that mean? A high priest, as you know, is somebody that does business with God on other people's behalf. They go into the, the high priest goes into the presence of God on behalf of Israel. And Jesus, right now, Paul tells the Hebrews, he's gone into heaven there to appear in the presence of God for us. 
I know he's seated in the matter of salvation and redemption, but Christ remains busy in heaven on your behalf. He's there appearing in the presence of our Father on your behalf, interceding for you. And so when you feel like nobody understands my brokenness, when you have circumstances that come into your life that are amazing, it's a, we, we simply don't know what a day holds. We, we, we go in thinking everything's fine, everybody's well, everybody's healthy. It's a good day, and you get news that just staggers you and shocks you. Just last Sunday morning, one of the sweetest and one of the dearest that we had, that we've ever had in my 46 years at McClinney Church as pastor, one of the dearest and sweetest that we had just before church. She lay her little head, her sweet little head down on a pew. And probably by the time her head was down on the pew, Jesus had called her home. We had no idea. She had no idea that she had heart trouble. No, she was the uh, epitome of health. No one knew that Sister Kathy had heart trouble. We certainly didn't know what Sunday held for us. We were heartbroken. Our souls were cleaved in two. But listen, Jesus knew what Sunday held for us at McClenney Church, and he knew what it was to have his heart broken. He's a merciful and a faithful high priest. Inasmuch as Paul said he has suffered being tempted, that means experiencing trial and trouble and difficulty and brokenness as a man. Paul uses these tender words. He's able to succor them that are tempted. You've experienced brokenness. Your heart's been broken. Your home's been broken. I've told our folks at church, if we could see in tangible, concrete form, some of the burdens that our brothers and sisters bring in with them that are resting on their shoulders when they come into the house of God, we wouldn't know what to say or how to speak to them. Some of the burdens that some of you are carrying that nobody knows anything about, and I'm telling you, Jesus doesn't just know them, he's experienced them. You're not alone. There are... There are three Greek words for depression, three different Greek words for depression. And there's one that is the worst of all. It is depression. It's dark depression. It's at the bottom of the abyss. It is the depression of depression. And the word exceeding sorrowful, that is the word that is used here. Have you ever been utterly sad? I'll never be happy again. Jesus knows that feeling. Sorrowful, exceeding sorrowful unto death. So why is he like that? Well, there are several reasons. As we talk about the soul suffering, the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ may create in us a love for him, a passion for him, a desire to serve him and to want to be better disciples and to serve him by serving others. And my chief motive for serving him is reflecting on what the Lord has done for me. The difference between Christ facing his death and the death of later disciples. Early Christians, early disciples, and I mean early, like in the first couple of hundred years of uh, Christianity, they argued that the death of martyrs, the death of the saints was one of the reasons that we should pay close attention to the faith of the early church was the way they died. It was amazing. It was amazing. And I, I think about uh, the great martyrs of the church, those that laid down their lives. Some of two women that stand out in my mind, the stories of uh, Perpetua, and Blondina. It was incredible how they suffered and, and how they suffered willingly and they were given opportunity after opportunity and their suffering and torture went over uh, the period of days and report after report that their faces just glowed like angels. 
And old Polycarp of Smyrna, whenever they threaten old Polycarp, plus 80 years of age with death, Polycarp, they threaten him with death with fire. And Polycarp says, bring the fire. Don't threaten me with fire that burns for an hour. I'll go to be with my God. Ignatius insisted, Ignatius of Antioch, they tried... (laughs) He was on a 1,500-mile journey to Rome from where they'd taken him in Antioch in, in Rome. And disciples after disciples and city after city had arranged for his capture. And many times they had arranged to, to get him away from his uh, Roman captors. And the Romans had become enamored with him, his captors. They would have given him up gladly. And Ignatius, Ignatius would not let them let him go. They, he made them take them to Rome. And they said as Stephen, when Stephen died, his face, you remember what his tormentor said? It was as the face of an angel. But let me say, when your Savior dies, his face does not shine like the face of an angel. What, what is, how can that be? How is that? The suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ as Christ dies. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, you think about this now. Just think about the weight of your sins. You just think about, well, you know, Brother Crawford, I'm not as bad as all that. I don't, you don't know it. You've never been here before. How can you call me out about my sin? Just let me ask you this. If I were to show a film of your entire life, every minute of every day of your entire life, how many of you would stay for the film? I'm at the back door. I'm, not, I'm, out. I'm back to Florida. I'll never see you show that film. You think about the weight of all of your sins. You think about how you have committed a sin and how that weighted you down and how you couldn't sleep at night and you found no rest and finally you found forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you think about the weight of all of your sins being laid on you at one time, all of your sins, and then multiply the weight of all of the sins of all of God's people, the multiplied billions of all of God's people across the ages and they are all laid on the lovely, the man Christ Jesus. They're all laid on his lovely brow all at one time. We can't fathom that weight. We can't fathom that weight. And in Gethsemane, it's beginning to crush him. It's beginning to weigh him down. Now at the cross, of course, and let me say this, it's at the cross that redemption is made. I want to be real clear about that. There was some issue about that 40 years ago, and Brother Sam set that straight. (laughs) Atonement in the garden, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm telling you, the storm clouds are getting, this is just what's going on before Calvary. This is what the Son of God is experiencing before Calvary. We will spend eternity contemplating the suffering of the Son of God at Calvary. We can't imagine. Because of the death that Christ died. He prays three times. He prays three times the same prayer. Matthew 27, he says, Father. And this is the reason for the press. He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass. The idea of the cup is mentioned over and over and over again in the, in the life by the Savior, especially as he goes into his public ministry over and over and over again. The cup, the cup, the cup. Father, be possible, let this cup pass. Now to, um, to the people of Christ's day, they know what that means. It's very clear to them, the cup. It was, it was, it was a judicial matter. It was like a symbol of the ancient uh, electric chair. You're gonna, somebody's going to be executed, they're going to get the cup. Socrates, whenever he is excommunicated, he's given the cup. He's excommun- literally given the cup, filled with hemlock, and he died. They're going to take the cup. They're going to be executed. Um, it's symbolically a judicial sentence. In the Bible, the cup speaks of God's judicial wrath against sin. The cup that my Father giveth me. Isaiah, those amazing words in Isaiah 53. You think about this. 
Isaiah says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The father gives his son the cup. Isn't that amazing? I spoke to a lot of fathers today who have sons. I have one. He's the engineer in the caboose, Boo Crawford. And you listen to me very carefully. He's a grown man. He doesn't need my help. He's 25 years of age, and uh, he's, a, he's a strong, robust young man. He can pick me up. But I'm telling you, <laughs> I'm telling you, if I get a phone call from Clinton, Mississippi tonight, and I know my son, I know his voice, and he were to call me, and he were to say, Dad, I'm in trouble. I need you now. Please come to me. I know what he sounds like when he's really in trouble. And if he were to call me and say, Dad, please come. I need you now. Nothing but Death would prevent me from getting to that blonde-headed boy. The Son of God at Calvary is going to cry out, My God. My God. It, it is going to please the Lord to bruise His Son. The cup that my Father giveth me, shall I not drink it? No wonder He's heavy. No wonder he's sore amazed. No wonder he's pressed down. He can see, he can see the time is coming, that a point is coming that has never occurred in all eternity past. Now, you, know, you have to be careful about talking eternity past. That's putting it on like a timeline, but that's the only way I know to refer to it. There is a time coming that has never occurred in eternity past. In eternity past, um, in the book of Proverbs, the relationship between the father and the son is, is described in such wonderful, delightful, precious tones. Where the son of God describes himself as his father before the world was. He said, I was as uh, one by him, brought up with him. I was daily his delight. My father delighted in me. I was always rejoicing before him. My father just delight, like a grandfather delights in a way, to see his grandchild just kind of banding around by his. The son was the apple of the pupil of the father's eye. It had been eternal, perpetual, unbridled, unhindered, perfect fellowship between the father and son. And now Christ can see the time is coming when it's going to be severed. He'll call. He calls for the father on Calvary. This is mystery of mystery. Calls for the Father on Calvary. Think about this. And heaven is silent. Does that amaze you a little? I've shared this, and this is my supposing. This is my speculating. And I don't do much of it. But I want to get the picture here. I want you to see what the Son of God sees is coming. He will call from Calvary and the Father is going to be, heaven is going to be, heaven will not answer. And I've often wondered, those seraphim, those cherubim that attended the crown prince of glory as they were looking down from heaven. Peter said angels, they don't quite understand redemption and salvation. They desire to look into what we see. But they can't get it like we do because they hadn't been redeemed. And I often wondered, as they looked down from heaven, did they look down and they saw what was happening to the crown prince of glory? I often wondered, did Michael or Gabriel say, Father, send us? I'll whet my glittering sword. One angel takes out 185,000 Assyrians in one night, the mightiest army on the face of the earth. Send us, we will wipe the earth clean of this crime. But the Father is silent. Jesus in the garden knows that time is coming. He's going to drink. He's going to drink the cup. Why is he going to drink the cup? Well, you know, but I'm going to share it with you in biblical terms. I love this passage of scripture. I think we ought to hear about it more. We don't hear it very often. This passage talks about the cup that Jesus sees very clearly in the garden, the cup that's coming. 
listen to this incredible figurative language, and it's in Isaiah 51. So here, we're going to see a great, great picture of the Trinity here. The Trinity is going to be portrayed. There's going to be thy Lord, which is the Lord, in all capital letters. You know in the Old Testament, when you see Lord in all capital letters, that's Jehovah. And so, listen to what Isaiah says. Thus saith thy Lord, which is the Lord. He's talking to God's people. Thy Lord, Jehovah. He says, Jehovah says this, and he says this to thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people. So here you have Jehovah, he's speaking to thy God, which pleadeth the cause of his people. So here we have the Father speaking to the Son. The Son's the one that pleads the cause of his people. Amen? Amen. So the Father speaks to the Son, and this is what he says to his Son. He's looking to the ascension and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks to his Son. This is after the Son has suffered at Calvary. This is why he must suffer. After the son has suffered at Calvary, after he's put the cup, the judicial wrath of God to his lips, and he does not put the cup down at Calvary until he's drank the dregs of the cup of the wrath of God dry. He's going to drink the dregs down. And then the Lord announces this. He says, now, son, behold, I've taken out of thy hand the cup of trembling even the dregs of the cup of my fury, and thou shalt drink no more of it again. And when the Father resurrected the Son on the third and revolving morning, that's what he's telling the Son. It's over, Son. You'll never experience that again. You'll never go through that again. I've taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the cup of suffering. Well, why did he put it in there to begin with? Notice... (laughs) Notice at the end of the 23rd verse, he said, But I put it in the hand of them that did afflict thee, which have said to thy soul, listen what he said, Bow down that we may go over. And here he says why Jesus had to drink that cup. Listen to this, it's so beautiful. The Father tells the Son of God, he said, Thou, this is so incredible. He said to his son, he said, thou has laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. You see, there was a time when our road was all jammed up with sand and there was no path forward for us. There was no, there was no future for us. There was no way ahead for us. Because our path to our God was completely jammed and blocked by our sin. And so the Father sends the Son. And the Son literally lays his life down. And it's on the finished work. It's on the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ that you and I, one precious day, are going over. Amen? And you know, last Sunday morning, Sister Kathy went over to glory on the finished work of the Son of God at Calvary. Because he took the cup, Jesus laid his body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. That's the, way, that's the reason the prophet said, and a highway shall be there, and another way. And a man, even though a fool, shall not err therein. And let me tell you, whenever it comes to the highway of salvation, you won't get it right. We're foolish, but we're going anyway because it wasn't up to us. It was what Jesus did. So the New Testament saints died better in that sense. They died better in that sense. Now listen, nobody's ever been more victorious in their death than Jesus was. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But their faces did shine because they were dying triumphantly in the finished work of the Son of God. And they knew it. The full wrath of the Son of God. So the cup, the absence of the, uh, the, absence of the Father's fellowship. <clears throat> There's something else that touches me about this passage. Something really touches me about this passage that um, just kind of occurred to me a year or so ago. I've, I've really tried to stress the point with you here that the storm clouds are gathering. 
that Christ gets it. He knows what's coming. He's beginning to taste it. He's beginning to wear it. He can see it. And that makes a a lot of difference. He knows the horrors of the next day. Don't forget he's God. (laughs) He's omniscient. He can see it. He knows the horrors that are awaiting him. Let me, so what I'm trying to say, there's a lot of difference in going and not knowing and going and knowing. So when I was, uh, when I was a, a little boy, I was riding double on a bike. I don't, do kids still ride bikes anymore? I don't, is that a thing? <laughs> Man, we couldn't all afford bikes back when I was a little boy, so you, you used to ride double. And folks my age you know what that means, children. Um, and so I was about five, and I was riding double on the back, and my, my foot, my foot got into the spokes on the back of the bike. And we were going down a hill. We were, believe it or not, there's a hill in Florida, and we were on the one hill in Florida. <laughs> and we were just moving down that hill, and my foot got in those spokes and it tore up the back of my heel and uh, I really don't remember much until I saw my father's face and I remember him gathering me up and I was crying and boohooing and all upset and uh, he said son I'm carrying you to the hospital and I got more upset not the hospital that's where they do bad no he said no 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 you've got it wrong he was smiling. He was a great dad. He was smiling, but he lied to me. He, he said, no, son, you've got it wrong. He said, no, that's good. It's wonderful things happen there. They're going to make you feel better. It's all going to be great. Don't you worry. You get there, it's all over. We, just, we, got, we get there quickly, and the quicker we get there, the better all this is going to be over. It's going to be great. And I went, and sure enough, the people that met me, they were smiling. It's, it's going to be okay, son. It's okay. It's going to be fine. And they got me in there, and a lady started sticking needles into my foot where it was hurt. No. I could, it was horrible. They were torturing me in there. It was unbelievable. That's when I found out my dad was a human being. So I overed it. I made it. Scars took years of deep therapy, but I made it. And then about three years later, I was playing one of my buddies at church, and um, we were kind of swiping at each other, and so I swiped at him, and so he was going to swipe back, and I turned my head, and I hit the side of a door really hard, and it opened up a cut right in my eyelid. And so here comes Dad, and he looks at and it's open. It required five stitches. And so he looks at it, you know, and I'm not, it's not as bad. I'm not squalling real bad. So he looks at it, and he, he smiles real big. He said, don't worry, son. Don't, it's going to be fine. Don't you worry. It's okay. It's going to take a few stitches, but we'll go to the hospital. They'll take care. It'll be great. And I thought, no, no, that's not getting over on me this time. Uh-uh. <laughs> I went there the last time. You're not doing that to me this time. I've got a little experience. I've been there. I know the horrors that are waiting on me in that ER. They do terrible things to little people in ERs. There is a difference. There's a difference in going and not knowing and going and knowing. I mentioned earlier this morning, I heard driving through Louisiana years ago, I heard a very throaty mannered minister preaching how shocked and surprised the Son of God was to find himself on the cross. And he said because his life was cut short, he didn't get everything done that he needed to get done in the matter of salvation, so it's left up to you and I to finish the work because his life was cut short. He was surprised. He was shocked. Nothing could be further than the truth. Before he left glory, he knew what he was coming to. He was God. As a 12-year-old boy, he knew 
that he had to be about his father's business. When he went to the tomb of Lazarus and called Lazarus, he knew that to call Lazarus from the grave would require that he would have to go to his own grave. He went knowingly. He knew what he was going to suffer. And how appropriate that all of this takes place in Gethsemane, in an olive garden, where there was an olive press. And you know how you get olive oil. Just like you do grape juice, you put it in the big vat, they bring the big press down on the olives, and they press it and press it and squeeze it and bruise the olives and mash the olives, and the oil comes out, and life flows from the press. Jesus is, Jesus is in the press. He's going and knowing. It's the ultimate it's the ultimate act of obedience. Now, think about this. The ultimate act of obedience. Up to this point in human history, it's always been, this, God always said, keep my commandments, you'll be blessed, right? Keep my commandments, you'll be, Brother Josh preaches here on a regular basis. There are blessings for keeping the commandments of God. Amen? There are blessings in keeping New Testament commandments. There are blessings. For obedience, there are great blessings. Now, for the first time in the history of humanity, God tells his son, you keep my commandments, and I'm going to rain on your head all the curses that they deserve. The only man that ever got it right that, that was perfect, and he was cursed. He was. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So, my point in all this, and we're through, I want to finish with this. This is, listen young folks, this is the love that you're looking for. This love relativizes all other love. I talked about a mother's love this morning. There are very few things that I know of ever that can rival a mother's love. But this relativizes a mother's love. This is the love that we are ultimately looking for. I mean, it relativizes a husband's love for a wife and a wife's love for a husband. It's great. We should love one another. And we talked about this morning. Sisters, I said this morning that you should be the, that Christ is top and sister, that you should be the, the queen of his universe, the epicenter of his world. You all remember that, would you? <laughs> I said that about you, or you should. But listen, ultimately, this is the love that we should define ourselves by. This is it. You see, if we love anything else more than we love him, if we love anything else more than we love him, so we know, first of all, we've made it an idol, right? We've turned a good thing into an ultimate thing. And there are plenty. A wife is a good thing. A son is a good thing. A grandchild is a great thing, right? Amen? <laughs> but if we make them ultimate things, let me tell you, anytime you make something an ultimate thing, it will eventually turn on you and despise you. Because it can't bear the pressure of what you're, if you're trying to make your wife, it's, it's all about, it's my whole life is nothing but her. If it's not Jesus first, you will put a burden on other relationships that they can't bear. And it won't work out. They can't take the pressure of it. They just can't. But he can take the pressure of you making him first. Keeping him first. This is the love that will not let you go. George Matheson, who was, he was known as the blind preacher of Scotland. I've read his essays. I love them. In the mid-1800s, George Matheson, um, he was engaged to a young lady. Well, this is why this kind of love, a Savior that loves you like this, if he is your chief love in your life, then all of your other loves will be balanced. 
George Matheson, he was a brilliant young man. He would go on to become a uh, Presbyterian minister in Scotland in the mid-1800s. He was brilliant. He was at the University of Glasgow, and he fell in love with the young lady. She loved him. They were engaged. While they were engaged, he found out that he was going blind, and nothing could stop it. And so the young lady told George Matheson, I don't think I can be married to a blind man. And she abandoned George Matheson. About three months after that, he went to his, his sister's wedding. And he could not rejoice. And he was overwhelmed with despair and depression, thinking, nobody will ever love me. Nobody will ever care for me. And in the midst of his darkness and in his depression around the time of his sister's wedding, he began to think about the Son of God in the olive press in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said. And then his mind went from there to Calvary. This is why it's so important we see the level of our Savior's love. And in just a few moments, and seeing the kind of love that we've tried to describe for you tonight, sacrificial love at levels we will spend eternity contemplating, George Matheson wrote this. If you live long enough, you're going to say goodbye to all the other loves in your life, right? If you live long enough, I love my wife. She's the beat of my heart. But if I live long enough, one or the other of us are going to say goodbye to each other. George Matheson wrote this. He said, I love this. I wish we sang it more. Oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in its ocean's depth may fuller, richer be. What George Matheson is saying, I recognize the love you have for me, Savior, is far greater than any love this world has. And in recognizing that, I'm going to give you back that love in my life and own you and crown you as the Lord of my life and the love of my life. And in doing that, my life will be richer and fuller than it ever could have been pursuing love in all the wrong places. It's good to love your wife. It's great to love your pastor. It's good to love your children, your grandchildren. But Jesus, most of all, he did for us. He lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we couldn't die, and he's going to carry us to a place that we would have never gotten on our own. I love him, and his love makes it worth it all. May God bless you and keep you as my prayer for Christ's sake.